Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm sitting here with Ben Hunter, and we are sitting across from Catherine Johnson, the author of Paris Savages. Welcome, Catherine. Oh, thank you, Olivia and Ben. It's lovely to be here. Um, Catherine, you've got a fantastic new book, Paris Savages, which is uncomfortable, it's uh, unconventional, it's um, important. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I'm really thrilled to have you here. Um, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your kind of unconventional journey into fiction writing? Yeah, thank you for that feedback, Ben. That means the world, actually. That's, it's been a six-year journey, this book, so it's, mm. um, it's had various iterations and a lot of thought that's gone into it. A PhD has gone into this book, yeah, actually. Right. So it's, um, it's, it's lovely to hear that feedback. Thank you. Yeah, so actually I started as a science writer mm. and uh, worked for CSIRO for a long time and did some freelance science writing and and then morphed into fiction writing because I was really fascinated in stories behind some of the the science stories I was writing about. Back then, it was illegal fishing that I that, that sort of prompt, prompted my um, first novel. Know, first novel, yeah, which was Pescador's Wake, and so that that got me into into writing more creatively. And 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 I haven't looked back. I can't seem to stop. <laughs> it just took over. Um, yeah, this this is this is big. Um, this Paris Savages, uh, as you just said, it, you got a PhD out of it. Mm. <laughs> um, so a lot of research. Um, where where did the uh, germ of this book plant itself? So I'd heard there was a story on uh, away on ABC Radio National about the discovery of a cast of a man, a full body plaster cast of a man in a museum storage space in Lyon in France. Mm. And this man was called Bonnie or Bonangera, um, a butler man from Fraser Island, Queensland. And it it transpired that the, the the archivists there figured out that he had been one of three people who had had toured Europe in 1882-83 to perform in ethnographic exhibitions. And this is not a story that I knew anything about. And I was I'd heard about. Um, human remains being taken to to Europe and of course there's uh, a lot of effort now being put into trying to get some of those back Um, but I hadn't heard about living people going to Europe for exhibition and I mean it's giving me goosebumps now actually just the the thought thought of that Um, and of course it was actually part when, when the PhD was fascinating because it was about human zoos which some people call these exhibitions Mm. in general as well so I learned that there were 35,000 performers from from around the world that were shown in Europe and America predominantly but other places too um, throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. These are all different kinds of First Nation people from all corners of what was then the new world. Yes so they were considered um, to have come from faraway places and considered to be exotic and all sorts of sort of representations of them. Yeah, and it's this hideous um, mix of spectacle and science. Very much so. So um, this was a time where science and spectacle really went hand in hand. Mm. And the, in fact, it was very convenient for the scientists of the day because these people were being brought to their doors. So there'd, there'd often be a, um, an exhibition or some kind of public showing and then there'd be a scientific examination in the neighbouring museum space and reports were written and sometimes um, the showman required um, certificates to be signed by the scientists that would say these people are authentic or whatever. And so, so science was very much um, hand in hand with the spectacle side of things and in a way that 
that was, you know, sometimes really, really dis disturbing. And the representations that came out of that um, really fed their way into the consciousness of the of the audiences, which were massive. A billion people in, uh, throughout the history of human zoos saw saw these shows. So those representations. Um, I, th I think it's an important part of history and that, that that was sort of the formation of some of the the racist ideas that the West formed about people from other places. And of course the stories were really only one side of the story. They were very Eurocentric stories. And uh, the, you can't help but wonder what the performers made of the people looking on, I think. It's so, so different to how sorry. science... <laughs> That's okay. It's so different to how science is kind of perceived now. There's a complete lack of exhibitionism in a way, I think that's very mistrusted. Do you think that's because of how it used to be? I'm not sure. I think uh, people have been fascinated. Um, I think people have been fascinated by difference. But I think I think the problem with that era was that there was also the ideas of racial hierarchy that were creeping into the science and sort of ranking rankings of inferiority and superiority and savage and civilised and these kind of ideas that were were coming into the mix, which was which was so damaging. Um, a novel is a real exercise in empathy, and um, this must have been just a huge work of imagination to sit in the chair and and sort of um, take readers into the world of the people um, who were being exported. These three individuals from the Pachala Nation and the the people who were in the process, you know, who were orchestrating that, facilitating that. Um, how how did you get there? How did you make that approach and come out with Heidi at the other end? It's it's a very oh, Hilda. Hilda, sorry, Hilda. <laughs> beg your pardon. It's a very it was a very um, tricky book to get my head around and to to try and figure out how to tell this story and how to tell it respectfully and well. Mm. And because so much of these I mean, so much of our history has been a half a story. We've only got the European side of stories. Yes. And in some ways that, that sort of failed us, really. And I, when I started this story, I wrote it just from the European perspective. So the, the three Aboriginal people were taken to Europe by a German man called Louis Muller. And I've created um, a fictional character, Hilda, who's his daughter. Yes. And she... She's the person who narrates most of the story and she has an insight because she's lived on the island for a while and she, so she is, she is a, a sympathetic, empathetic person and has, uh, that, that, that's her voice and her trying to, trying to imagine what it's like for the people who were, who were taken away. But I did feel like that wasn't quite enough and that I wasn't... I wasn't uh, doing justice to the fact that there is a silenced history too that hasn't been told. But then how do you do that when you're not an Aboriginal person? And that that has occupied much of my thinking over the last six years and how, how to go about that. And I spoke to a bachelor artist and academic early on about about what I was looking into and uh, she's fascinated by the silenced story as well. And... What I just and I listened to a lot of the the debates and the arguments around how to how to do this, and my approach was to not assume an Aboriginal point of view, but not to leave it out of the story either, which I felt was a uh, a worse crime than putting it in. Leaving it silenced. Mm. Mm. 
Um, a worse crime than leaving it silenced, yes. Um, tell, tell us about um, seeking out that Bachala perspective on that. Um, were there multiple people that you were in touch with? or? Um, so I was in touch with uh, a lady uh, who has put a, a quote on the back of the book too to contextualise the story from an Aboriginal perspective. So that's Dr Fiona Foley. And she was able to check uh, a draft of the book early on as well. She also recommended to me a book of legends, which, is, which were called The Legends of Mooney Jal, uh, written by a bachelor man and illustrated by um, Olga Miller. And the copyright holder of that is a bachelor elder called Glenn Miller. And I wrote to him and said, after I'd read the book, what do you think about me putting a couple of quotes from the book in the story? To I don't want to make up these things. I want them to be authentic. And he mm. said, sounds like a good idea to me. So he was supportive of doing that. So that was really important um, to me. I wouldn't do that otherwise. And I spoke to a, a language expert as well to make sure that the language I was incorporating in the book was right so as well. So different kinds of anglicisations of these words that you use. Yes, and I've used some, some bachelor words in there that mm. are... that. Um, so if I'm talking about the... Uh, some of the animals and so forth from the island. I'm using the, the bachelor words, so that that was important to me as well. Mm. And uh, and actually, early on when I was speaking to uh, Fiona, she she contacted um, the Wandana clan, who are the people who where Bonnie and the the other two people, Joanna and Gerano, were taken from. They were that Wandana people, and so she let her community know this was going on. And what other um primary accounts, uh, primary resources did you look at in um, producing the stuff, I guess, out, out of the European side of it? So it was – because I did it, did it as part of a PhD, I mm. did ha actually have an opportunity to do some travel and went to Germany and went to the show spaces where the group were known to have been, which included, would you believe, Dresden Zoo – they were also in the Berlin Panopticum Waxworks, um, which is actually just a hotel now. And I went into the hotel and I knew that I had old photographs of where the site was. I knew I was in the right place, but it's quite a flash hotel now and I had no idea that this, that this Panopticum was there beforehand. So people were shown there from all around the world and waxworks um, were made. So I went there as well. And I also went to a place in Hamburg, which was one of the original sites of the Hagenbeck Tier Park, which, is, which was a, a zoo. But Hagenbeck was a German man who was instrumental in bringing people shows to Europe. So there was P.T. Barnum in America and Hagenbeck in Europe. And he was, he was pivotal. And he would then tour people, including to places like Paris, um, which would, uh, which I include in the story. Yes. Even though the so so the story goes to the places where it's known that the troop were. Having said that, so there's a record that they had been in in Hamburg and that they were shown under Hagenbeck um, in a newspaper article from Dresden, but the Hagenbeck archives don't have them listed as people who were shown there, which is interesting. But their their listing isn't complete either. And they had some sad stories of people who, who died in Europe from disease and so forth. So I don't know why they're not in the archives when the newspaper article in Dresden says that they were they were shown under him. So there are some discrepancies and it's tricky to pull the pieces together. But I went to that site, which is now a school, but it's, it's, it's still, you can see what the space was like and it's surrounded by four-storey buildings and 
it's actually one of the parts I enjoyed writing most of the book because I, I had stood in that space and imagined there were polar bears in cages and tigers in pages mm. in cages, and um, and people from around the world in that same space. It's a it's a really um, a tricky thing to imagine now. I think. Yeah, and but you've evoked so much in this book, and you've got a really vivid um, kind of storytelling. Uh, how how have you sort of been able to take all of this stuff and you know, a PhD as well and, and to be able to sit down and kind of imagine mm. and actually make something that's really compelling and readable while still being uncomfortable and authentic? Yes, yeah, so I didn't want to weigh it down with the research. I mm. wanted it to be informed by the research. I wanted to make sure it was kind of my pact with myself that what we did know about the story was in there. But then, in fact, I'm quite careful in the acknowledgements too to say this is what we know and then the rest is fiction because I felt like there's there's a story behind the story that I really wanted to to explore and to I think it's important that we we do try and imagine these histories that haven't been told and 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 what the effect of them might have been. So so I, I really enjoyed the creative side of of trying to piece it all together, the environments that the people were in, what it might have been like, what you know, what they made of the people looking on. And, uh, yes, the it, 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 I mean, essentially it had to be, it had to be a, a compelling story as well. And there were, there were certain elements like I went to Lyon in France as well and saw that cast that I was talking about at the beginning of the mm. podcast. And that was a pretty incredible experience because it's down, it will have moved now because that museum was in the process of being moved, but it used to be the old Natural History Museum in Lyon. And I went down, I had my family with me actually, we had sought permission to, to have access to, to be able to go and see this cast. So it's right down in the storage space in this uh, compactus of um, white storage containers. So the, the, the person in the museum has to sort of wind open this compactus and, and then there are these artefacts from all around the world, including this full cast of this man, Bonnie. And, and there he is with his... Um, scars on his chest which were the markings of the place and the people and his uh, his skin's been coloured uh, painted um, but every pore of his skin is visible and it's it's the in fact you can see these images on the ABC Away website okay uh, cast among strangers the, there's a, some images of that cast so so seeing that kind of thing I think is really important for informing the story but it has to be a it has to be a a compelling story. So there's, there, it's the relationships between the people and the, the struggles for connection and the betrayals. I mean, betrayal is a big part of the story. I think, Want, wanting there to be outcomes. It was a very grim time in Queensland when that, when this was happening. So there had been massacres in Queensland, and what the people were leaving behind wasn't fantastic in many ways. So, so that that colours the the story as well. I think. And perhaps a sense of hope too that they were hope, hoping for change. Mm. You mentioned that um, incredible number, one billion people saw these ethnographic zoos. Um, when, when, did the, when did the practice begin and when did it sort of hit its peak? Yeah, so, so this was interesting. I was doing this research for the PhD. I mean, there are examples of people being taken to Europe 
from the time of Columbus, really. But in terms of the mass exhibitions, it was really the late 19th century and early 20th century where you'd, ha you'd have huge audiences um, starting to come and see people perform in various venues around, around Europe and also in America. Startlingly, the last one was in the 1950s in Brussels in Belgium. Where the 1950s? The 1950s. A group from the Congo were on display, which is just... Um, there's an article in the Garden, Guardian about about that one, and uh, it's quite well known. But that that's quite startling. But this this period that I'm writing about was um, really the beginning of the the mass uh, the mass exhibitions. It was just sort of right at the beginning of that. They got they got bigger than than in this story. Yeah, it seems to be sort of transitioning out of a very scientific establishment thing to a very that's right. Public that's exactly spectacle. right. Which is why those representations that came out of the science and, and out of the um, the shows um, gained traction because so many people were seeing them and being influenced by them. Um, is there any evidence, or that you you've seen that any of this had a, a, a positive effect on European attitudes or, or, or relations between um, sort of European and Aboriginal Australia? So, well, I'll talk more general, generally, I think, because what's, what was interesting too was speaking to academics in Europe who've studied um, human zoos and they, weren't, they certainly weren't all the same. It depended a bit on where, they were, where people were being shown, who was showing them, um, and there are examples of people, the Sami people from Northern Europe, who had some agency over how they were shown for certain and were able to negotiate really good conditions and um, had, had contracts. Contracts became something that were, um, were used in, to, to a degree. So it seems that the experience there was, was, was quite a good one. People, there are records that have been left that indi indicate that. There aren't many records of performers, but there, some exist there. And there's a German researcher who was also looking at the Somalian people who were shown and who brought, went back home and brought more members of their family back to Europe again year after year and took the money that they made back and started up textile industries apparently. So I think it's – I don't want to uh, suggest that, that it was always a victim relationship. I think it's important that, that there's room – to imagine that people might have been able to assert some agency over how they were shown and what their conditions were, so that uh, yeah, so the experience wasn't wasn't always a negative one. There's another group of Aboriginal people who were taken from Palm and Hinch in Brook Island, and there's a great book called Professional Savages, which was by Rosalind Poignant, and she she writes about that group who were taken by a man called Cunningham, a Canadian. And they were shown by P.T. Barnum in America and they were also taken to Europe about the same time. And their experience really wasn't, wasn't a good one at all. Um, less is known about the Butchler Trio that I'm writing about, but, but Cunningham's group, um, it seems to have been a very severe power imbalance and uh, a lot of the people died overseas. And in fact, one man's body was only returned in the 1990s to Australia. It was found in America. So that's a that's a that's another story again. Yes, it's um, incredible. Uh, there seems to be like a, a a great shift in Australian perspective to our history. Um, you know, certainly in the last hundred years, and it just seems to have accelerated 
in the past, yeah, just the past two years even, you know. Um, uh, at the end of this massive project, how do you um, view the sort of journey of black and white Australia um, through the lens of, uh, of this really interesting sort of untold part of our history? Yes, it's, I think it's important that all Australians think about our history and how, how it's impacted on the present. I think it's great that there are more Indigenous voices telling their own histories and I think that there are fantastic stories there and that it's important that there is space for those stories in, in, in publishing. I think it's, uh, it's also important that um, non-Indigenous writers grapple with the histories as well. Mm. And I think that, in fact, Marcia Langton has a, a quote that she wrote for the Australian Film Corporation about... Um, how people are represented, and she says she says that the the easiest and most natural form of racism in terms of representation is making the other invisible. So I wanted to avoid that in terms of approaching this book. I didn't want there to be si completely silent stories. I wanted somehow to honour the fact or shine a light on the fact that there are silent stories without without actually taking that point of view and writing that story, just to say there are stories we haven't heard, we should realise that and that if we did know that there were other stories and other perspectives, maybe the some of the stereotypes that came out of those shows would have been contested before now. So I think that I think we have sort of have to contest the representations that, that were made in the past. Mm. Um, do you have any idea of what you might be writing next? You must be exhausted after I, six years. To be honest, I am a little exhausted at the moment, and I, and I'm I do have a little glimmer of an idea, but I'm I'm trying to just it's it's quite an addiction writing I'm I'm discovering I think, and I and I love it dearly, but I'm just letting that idea sit over there for a minute, and and catching my breath um, on on this one and enjoying speaking about it too. It's been a real mm. it's been a real journey must the be writing really good well. to be on the other side mm, it is <laughs> um well, do, is do you have any um advice just uh, as we end on um on people trying to transition really big research projects um into fiction because it just seems like a, a herculean task yes i think it's important so my phd supervisor had a good good saying she said don't let the research poke through and i thought that's a it's a it's a good image to have. You don't you don't want to you don't want to notice the research in a way that takes you out of the story. Mm. It needs to be there as a way of grounding the story and making the story authentic and real and um, bringing it to life. Really, so good research I think can really bring a story to life because you're getting a sense of the place and the people and uh, the, the, what they wore. And um, I had Hagenbeck wearing his. Homburg hat which was classic of the era and he would sort of hold this hat and pet it like it was a creature almost and sort of little little details like that that come out of the research I think are quite lovely to to bring a story and characters to life but I think you have to be careful that you don't that you don't weigh it down with the research that it's that's the story that's driving the driving the book you've created an incredible thing mm -hmm. and um yeah I don't think it's going to be everyone's cup of tea it's a challenging book it's uncomfortable um, but I think it's it's totally worth the time. <laughs> Lots of people go and find it. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you, thank you, Olivia. It's lovely to lovely to meet you and lovely to to talk about it with you. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure having you. 
you're listening at home, you can buy your copy of Paris Savages from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.